you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and 7 is where we will be this morning. I don't know if you remember back when Planet Earth came out. Planet Earth was a, a series that the BBC released. And, and when it first came out, it just kind of filming all of creation. It just blew my mind watching some of those scenes originally. Now they've since come out with all sorts of things from them. Planet Earth 2 and Blue Planet, all this kind of different things, the kind of spinoffs of that. But Planet Earth to me was like the, the, the one that captivated my mind with these amazing scenes. And, and what they did was they, they were able to catch nature and God's creation in so many different angles with a high definition lens and, and different views of every different thing. And one of my favorite, maybe one of the most captivating, but also most chilling ways that they caught stuff was, was with a helicopter. And so they'd use this helicopter and they'd be flying over these animals, just watching them, following them around. And, and it was captivating to me. And, and some of the more captivating scenes were the scenes where, where a predator was after prey. And so there's, there's one where there's this pack of wolves that are, are going after, I think they were caribou, and they're just following them in the air. And they're just chasing them all over the place. And it just was amazing to see how they'd go after it. It was interesting that the caribou are, are migrating and moving anyway, and these wolves are kind of chasing them in a way, in a where they want to go. But that's not what the wolves want. They don't want them to just go where they want to go. They're out for kill. And so it's amazing to see kind of the aerial shots as they go through all the way from stalking to killing. In Proverbs chapter 6 and 7, this father of wisdom speaking to his son gives us a view like that. He gives us another warning about this adulterous woman, and he, and he gives us an aerial shot of this man and his temptation and fall into sin. It's a view of temptation and sin that I think that should be sobering to us, that's conclusion is, is chilling in many ways. And although we've been warned about adultery and sexual temptation and sexual morality before in the book of Proverbs, the father finds it necessary to bring it again. And so the father pleads with urgency for his instruction to be kept and to not be forsaken. You've heard these words before. Chapter 6, verse 20. He says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. And when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. So it, it seems as if the, this parent, this father and mother are dealing with someone they think has grasped wisdom to an extent, but that he needs to keep on going in it, that he, he needs to hold on to it. And, and you can see some of the language that's used as he started is language that's similar to language that you'd find in the law. So some of the language that you see as we go through the end of Proverbs chapter 6 is, is language that you'd see in, in like Psalm 119. And there is a tight connection, I think, between the law and wisdom. There's all sorts of familiar language, language that they share. And so while it seems like he's saying things from the law, wisdom is in view here. But there's a tight connection between the two. And I thought that this comment from one commentator was helpful. So the law is the direct revelation of God. Wisdom works within the framework of that revelation to explore the bounds of human responsibility. And so we have the, the law, which is God's direct revelation, but how are we to live within this law? I mean, there's all sorts of areas that we still need help in. Wisdom is needed. So the law says don't sin, 
And wisdom would come in and say, well, stay far away from it. So the law says, don't commit adultery. And here wisdom comes and says, stay far from the adulterous woman. And so they're working hand in hand. What folly does is it rejects the framework altogether. It doesn't, is not concerned whether it operates within the framework or however it just goes according to what it wants. And so folly rejects it altogether. But the wise have, have wisdom bound up in the heart that they might walk in a way that would honor and glorify God. They want their heart to always be led by, protected by, and instructed by wisdom for all aspects of their life. Verse 23 continues. Here's the Psalm 119 kind of language. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So wisdom gives light, it gives reproof, keeps you away from treacherous places, from deadly cliffs that are all around you, from obstacles that you can avoid if you just hear wisdom. And one of those cliff edges is an adulterous woman, an evil woman. Now before when we've, we've spoken of this woman, it may have been different. It may have been a prostitute, it could have been someone who was unmarried. It seems like all the way through 6 and 7 that this is definitely a woman who is married. And though married, she employs the same tactics as every other woman. She has a smooth tongue. She says what you want to hear. She tells you what you like and what you want, and she allures you with that. But there's more to her than that. Verse 25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. So we're going to add to a smooth tongue beauty. So there's more to the appeal than just she's saying the right thing. She's also beautiful. And the NIV says it uh, of the eyes that she's captivating with her eyes. So she's, she's beautiful, she dresses to kill, and she speaks smooth words. And so again, we, we find out that evil has an appeal, has a real appeal, a magnetic draw, almost a flawless presentation. The fruit in the garden was, was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And fools, what they do is they underestimate evil and the appeal of evil. They flirt with it, and they don't see the hidden danger behind it. One commentator said, if, if only evil were always ugly, life would be simpler. If only everything were color-coded to make it obvious, if only there were warning labels on all of the poisons. But there's not, and there won't be. And so we need wisdom to instruct us. We need it to guide us. And in fact, color coding wouldn't fix the problem. It wouldn't actually prevent the danger. Because notice again what is said in verse 25. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Hey, the problem isn't necessarily and only external. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. There's a problem that's not external, it's internal. Where does it all start? How does the father start to instruct the son on avoiding this evil woman? He doesn't start with the evil woman. He starts with the son's heart. He says, this, this woman is evil, but I'm going to address you and your heart. And that's what wisdom does. Because while instructing on the appeal of evil might be helpful and how to handle it, the father has to address more than just the external can't just address what the woman's wearing, what she's saying, how you're hearing. He has to address what's going on inside, the internal. One summer to make some extra money, I decided to be a baseball umpire. 
Not my favorite job in the world. So all I did was umpire games for, I think they were 12 and under. So not high-level play here. And I wasn't a high-level umpire. <laughs> Readily admit it. There was one game where there was this particular coach from a small town that he was pretty excited about baseball and life. He got angry quickly often. And so I can handle this to an extent. But there was one inning when, if you don't know baseball, you have to get three outs per inning. Then you bring your guys in. His people were out in the field. He said, hey, we got two outs. I knew on my clicker. It's the best thing I had there. We only have one out. I didn't go above and beyond to make sure that he knew that we only had one out and not two. But I was clear, like, there's one out. So he'd get the next out, and he starts bringing his people off the field. You know where this is going, don't you? There are people on base. He's drawing his people out into the dugout. Runners are just running, and I, I just let them score. He wasn't so happy with me. And he just started trying to rip me in half. What am I thinking? How could I have done this? How could I have not have been more clear? All this kind of stuff. And, and the whole time, what I'm thinking is, I'm, not, I'm, I'm confused with why you're yelling at me. Like, I'm not the one that had the outs wrong. Like, that would have been you. Sometimes when we think about sin and temptation, we start to address the external first. And maybe even exclusively. Like the problem was this guy. You should have done differently. When what's needed and what needs to be addressed is first of all internal. It's our hearts. And the desires of our hearts. Yeah, we do need to cut off the hand. But unless we check and change our hearts and address our hearts, we cut off our hand in vain. And James tells us in James chapter 1. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And where does that come from? It comes from the heart. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is why the instruction in verse 25 from this father of don't desire her beauty in your heart is important. That the location of the battle against this adulterous and evil woman starts with and begins with someone's own heart. That we're not first looking externally to this person saying, well, if that's the way it is, we're going to have to address her. No, don't desire her beauty in your heart. All of us are sinners. We have fallen natures. We have evil desires in our hearts. We have Desires for things other than God. We desire things more than God. And that's the essence of temptation. And if we act on those desires and we let those desires rule, then we are going to go into a place we do not want to go. And so that's why don't desire is an important command from this father for the son to heed. Yes, this woman is called evil. And she is an adulterer. And she is a temptress. All of those things. So what? Cut off that part of you that would follow down that line of thinking. Say no to those desires in your hearts. Cut that thought off and don't let it continue. And this can be done. This can be done even in the moment. 1 Corinthians tells us that no temptation has overtaken us except for what's common to man. We're all dealing with it. Maybe it's not an adulterous woman. There's, there's temptation that's stalking you in your life. And you need to stop it in your heart. And here's how you do it. You, you don't rely upon your own strength. You don't rely upon your own power. What does it say? No temptation is overtaking you except what's common to man. But what's God going to do? 
He's the one who's going to be faithful. He's the one who's going to provide a way of escape for you. And so in the midst of temptation and broken, fallen desires, we can rely fully on a God who is faithful to provide us in a way out, to provide us an escape, and we know that he'll do it. Because as we look to him, as we rely upon him, we are drawn to him. And our desires are drawn to him. And we can start to even see those desires begin to change as we see how good he is. And then by his power, we can keep our heart from sin. All of a sudden, the the advice from this father to keep our heart with all vigilance becomes even more important. We, We guard it. We set up these things around it that we might not let evil desires flow out of it. Because out of our heart flows all of our lives. And there are consequences for our sinful desires that make their way out into actions. And the father warns of these in verse 26. He says, For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. This is a really hard verse to think through what it actually is saying and what he means. But I don't think that the father is speaking of worth. He's he's not saying, well, one woman is worth this and another woman is worth that. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's speaking instead to the the natural consequences of sin. He's saying that that the prostitute is going to cost money at least. Although we've seen it might cost a lot more. But but the married woman is going to cost you even more. It's going to cost you your entire life. I think this is paired with verse 34 and verse 35. Here's why it costs your life. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. And so it's, it's not that one a prostitute over a married woman is better or worse. I think it's just saying one is doubly wrong. And the consequences are, are maybe even more drastic, and they will ensue in your life. If you take the bait from this woman, no matter how attractive it is, you're going to get the hook, and it's destructive. And he says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now embracing this woman is is embracing fire. It's not wise. Burns the house down. And he continues that people... People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he'll pay sevenfold. In other words, there's consequences even for lesser things that don't have as many harsh consequences. They still will pay. He will give all the goods of his house, but he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now here's what the the walking in this kind of sin will do. It'll bring destruction, self-destruction. It'll bring disgrace into one's life. Well, that's not a message you're probably going to hear today. Or sexual uh, morality is all about self-fulfillment. Finding what works best for you. Or or it's about an appetite that needs to be fed. So it's, it's a natural longing. So feed it however you can, whatever you want. It's, it's maybe even a, called a, a matter of self-expression. You need to be who you are, and this is one way that you can show that and express that. And so speaking with biblical clarity to these issues of sexual morality, it, it brings a lot of fire. And people don't like direct speech to those things, especially today. Maybe it brings even more, more backlash than most items that we can speak to. But God is kinder than our culture. 
He's kinder than us. He's kind enough to give us the hard truth. He's kind enough to show the consequences of sexual folly. He's kind enough to say, here's a cliff's edge. If you fall off of this, there's disgrace. It's self-destruction. It's not good for you. He's kind enough to reprove us so that we don't walk into thorns and brambles. Because walking in sexual sin is destructive, he says. It brings disgrace that can't be wiped away. In other words, what I think the Father is getting at is that if you're going to walk in this kind of sin, you're going to be the one that walks into the room or, or, and is known as, oh, there's the one who committed adultery. Or, or you're going to be the one in the family like, oh, Grandpa, yeah, that's the adulterer. That's kind of what the Father is saying. That's the connotation that's going with this type of sin. There's the one who did that sin. And if you've walked in this sin and you know its destructive effects and you've felt disgrace that it brings then you need to know something else that that doesn't have to be all that's said about you it doesn't have to be all that's said about your life in first peter chapter 2 we have this great statement about the gospel from peter he says in first peter chapter 2 verse 24 That he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you've walked in this kind of sin, if you've felt this destruction in your life and had suffered the consequences, or even felt the disgrace, the disgrace that seems like it won't go away, then you need to know about the wounds that can heal. Yet judgment in Jesus has already been poured out. It's gone for you. That You have been disgraced, but all of your disgrace can be wiped away by the wounds of Christ. You can be healed. What you must do is turn from your way of life, from your sin, to this Christ. And you need to make your repentance as notorious as your sin. So that, yeah, they might say, look, here comes that one who committed that sin, the adulterer. But they will also say, But he also turned from that. You don't have to let the only thing be said about you, that you're the adulterer, that you are with the adulterous woman. You can have more said about your life if you would turn and be healed by the wounds of Christ. Because there's only one who can satisfy. There's only one who can wipe away all the disgrace. And his love for you is great. But the cost of sexual sin is not to be downplayed at all. And the Father doesn't do it. It's not to be avoided. We need to, need to know its consequences. We need to know its strategies to tear us down. And, and that's where the Father goes next. Chapter 7, we, we get the helicopters are, are up and flying, and we're watching predator and, play, and prey in a sense. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call, to in, call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress and her smooth words. So there's one woman to keep really close, and there's one to kind of put the stiff arm to. If you keep lady wisdom close, then, then there's no room then for this forbidden woman to come in. And he says, keep this wisdom, write it on your heart. We want you to know it, we want you to live by it, that out of your heart, out of your desires, you will flee from sin, making external changes only, that's not going to change enough to hold up underneath the smooth words and beautiful temptation that you face from this woman. This is Father Wisdom speaking, right? Wisdom, experience. 
I'm telling you this because I've made these observations, is what he's saying. And here's the observation. Verse 6, notice what he says. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, and I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The word used of this person that he's observing is the word simple. It's the same word he used back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he said that the beginning of wisdom, you remember this? But the end of it that we don't often think about is that fools despise. That is the simple, same word there for fools. They despise wisdom and instruction. And maybe it didn't sound like such a big deal then, but it starts to look like a bigger deal now. So I think when we turn to Proverbs, it seems like, and, and this is me as well, a thought maybe of, of wisdom as neutral. So if you get it, that adds something to your life, that's good. But if you don't get it, it's like no harm, no foul. So maybe we have a neutral attitude with wisdom. But, but here's an observation from a wise father that should jar us from that kind of neutrality towards wisdom. So here's one who's simple, who has no wisdom. He's a fool, and all he does is he goes near to this woman at dark. And he's going down to a sad end. It could be that this man isn't even out for sin. He's just going for a stroll at night, completely innocent of of any sort of aim for wrongdoing. In fact, I do think that that's kind of the picture, that he's just walking and going on a walk at night. But he doesn't have the sense to know what to avoid. Now, all of a sudden, wisdom isn't so neutral. Wisdom could protect us from evil, and that matters in a scenario like this. And so he doesn't know what to avoid, verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, and her feet don't stay at home. In other words, she she is out and about. She's known everywhere, she's loud, but she's wily of heart. In other words, she's guarded in her heart. So her real motives, we don't know. She's not known by people in that way. But now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner, she lies in wait. And so here's this son in a a dangerous position. He's aimlessly walking at night, and he meets a woman who's dressed to kill. And so already when he gets to that place, he's trying to carry fire close to his chest. He's walking on hot coals, hoping he doesn't get burned. We know what the, the father would say to him at this point, like, you need to run for your life. You need to flee from this adulteress. But he lacks sense. And listen what happens. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She puts on the full court press. You, yeah, you're the one I was looking for. You're just like what I want. You're the perfect one. And she doesn't just talk. She does more than that. She has physical appeal. She's dressed like a prostitute. She has physical appeal in her touch. She gives smooth words, words that would captivate and draw in. And then she even sweetens the deal with this. I've already made sacrifices. So in other words, part of, part of my, my meal that I've given, I've sacrificed, but I have some left over. We've got a, we've got a feast waiting us. And so at every corner, she meets with comfort and ease and good, and it sounds 
like this is something to go after. She sweetens the deal even more as you continue to read. Verse 16, she said, I've spread my couch with coverings and colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, he will come home. So here's what she's offering. Luxury, I've got this bed, I've got spices, but all this, I've got a feast and, and love. And we'll just take our fill till the morning, and no one has to know that's what's offered. No one has to know. So she's easy on the eyes, she offers a lot, and there's this promise of no repercussions, no consequences if this happens. And the fruit was good to, for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. And a promise was given in the Eden, in Garden of Eden as well. You won't surely die. There's this scientist by the name of Temple Grandin. She decided to start doing uh, some, some uh, research on animals and what stresses them out or scares them. And so she'd do these different tests to find out what would give animals stress. Specifically, she was interested in, and other people were interested in, her research for the beef industry. Because it's said that if they are scared or frightened when they die, that they release hormones and that makes the meat quality go down. So she started suggesting that high stress in animals can release these hormones and would downgrade the quality of meat. And so what she did was she developed technology for the slaughterhouse to keep the stress low, to keep fright at a minimum. And so she developed this whole system where the cattle go in and there's no prodding, no sticks, no hooping and hollering to get them to go in the right direction. These are all the things I knew as a cattleman. <laughs> Hot shots, sticks, whatever you can do, go this way. It's not hard. None of that. Gentle leading. Quiet space. Slow curves. You can just mosey around them. Just go at your own pace. And so these cattle, they do this. This is actually used at slaughterhouses. And as they do this, they ease onto a conveyor belt that they hardly even notice. They're slowly lifted up and then the end comes. And oddly enough, this method is called, she named it, the stairway to heaven. <laughs> and doesn't that picture fit the scene? Listen to verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And the simple one was led gently, carefully cultivated, and then without noticing, he's lifted up and ensnared. What a chilling conclusion to one who is just aimlessly walking. And there's even animal-like language here. An ox goes to the slaughter. He was being groomed, led in a direction, and he got caught. And one author says that the, the path of temptation is gradual and intelligent, not as sudden and random as it seems. That the stairway to heaven, it was designed to make these cows think that they were going home. That's what she said. 
And that's sort of how temptation for this man likely seemed to him. Only just going out to do something that seems okay to do. Or I'm actually going to the thing I want to do anyway. It seems right, it feels right, and it was taking him to his death. So the outcome of this man wasn't that he had a night of feasting and taking his fill of love without consequences at all. He did surely die. All this man did was walk aimlessly. Didn't seem to be out for evil. And he ran into a woman and began a conversation, all innocent enough, and he followed her plan. The author continues, in many ways, the more tranquil you feel, the more endangered you are. As you find yourself curving around the soft corners of life, maybe you should question the quietness of it all. Perhaps you should listen beneath your feet for the gentle clatter of hooves. Many of our temptations are not going to jolt us. They're not going to frighten us. They're not going to induce anxiety. Many of them are not even going to be noticed at all. Many of them will actually look really good to us. We have sinful desires in our hearts that are already locked and loaded, ready to go. And the path to sin is gradual and often intelligent. And it leads down to sin and to sin's consequences, which is death. And I think that we need to ask ourselves a question that if you could do anything you wanted and no one had to know and you had no consequences even on the day of judgment for what you were doing, what would you do? If you could do anything you wanted, no one had to know, there were no consequences, what would you do? There may be some good things there, there may be some wicked desires there. But without doubt, whatever those areas are, the things that you think of that you would do, are areas that you better be careful with. Maybe some areas you need to let some others in on. Definitely some areas that you need to crucify. You need to start speaking truth to those areas that not walking in the fear of the Lord and wisdom in those areas could be deadly because you have sinful desires that are ready to go. That that area that seems like it's going to lead you to satisfaction in life and a night of love with no consequences in the end and we'll just take our fill of it is not leading you in that direction like it's promised. And so with the slaughterhouse view of this man's temptation and death, the father says this. And I've used the image of of kind of following predator and prey, but the father doesn't do that. He addresses the son's heart and here again he addresses the son. It's not as if this woman has gotten something that wasn't a willing person in this whole act. He says, now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is no stairway to heaven. This is the escalator to destruction, down to death. And many go there. The father saying, look at the bodies, they're everywhere. I've seen them, they're laying there. Notice what's going on. It's almost as if he's grabbing like, do I have your attention now? 
Like I keep saying, be attentive to my words, and now I'm going to give you a, an application for this. Look what I've seen happen. Do I have your attention now? Will you listen now? Will you heed these words now? Watch your heart, he says. Because out of that, it's going to flow all of your life. And don't let it go aside to her ways. Keep a guard on it. Be vigilant there. Put up walls around it. And that's what wisdom is saying to us all. Wisdom is saying to us all that this could be you. The father could have looked out his window and it could have been you. I know this is for us all because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Anyone who thinks he stands, you need to take heed unless you fall. And so no matter how many times we have a warning, it's always for us because if we think that we're standing, we especially need to take heed lest we fall. If we think that we're good, then we need to especially watch out because we're close to the edge. The fall is nearer than we think. And so walking casually or aimlessly isn't going to work. Being lackadaisical in our life, acting as if we're not in a war zone with our sinful heart that's full of sinful desires isn't going to work. That that's going to lead us in a path that will lead to destruction. We're in a war. We have evil desires within us. That's the main battle. They're in our hearts. We need to crucify them, the New Testament says. We also have an enemy without. I think he knows us pretty well. He's been observing us for years. Not us, humans. He knows. And no temptation, whatever your temptation is, no temptation is, is not common to man. He knows what turns your head. He knows what gets your attention. And he's all too willingly to provide all of those things should you just not bow the knee to Jesus. Are we armed and ready? Are we addressing our hearts? Are we listening to the voice of wisdom? Don't we need this? Here's a chilling end that hopefully has our attention. That there's this really easy path from aimlessly wandering to temptation, to sin, to death. And it could be any of us. And the Father says to all those who have ears, would you come with me down this path and let's look at this road of destruction. You need to mark it well in your mind that you wouldn't go this way and that you would listen to my voice instead. That you might hear wisdom and heed its word. And it strikes me that this is what the cross should do for us as well. When we have a cross, we, we think of it as a, a symbol of, of grace and love, and it is all of those things. But when we look to the cross, it should take us to this place of a skull, a place that isn't well thought of, because this is where people go to die. And when we think about the cross, we need to think about it before it is something that is done for us. We need to know that it is something done by us, that we behold that our sin held him there. And so we're going down as we're looking at the cross. We're reminded like that's what I deserve. That should be me. That's what my sin has done. This is how bad my sin is. That this is what it deserves. That I should be on that cross. Amen. So our father takes us down that path. But God in his great love for us. Didn't put us on the cross. He himself put on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
That we might not desire for things other than the God that would love us that way in our hearts. He doesn't want us to go to the chambers of death. But as we're locking down that path, the only way it's going to jar us from our unrighteousness and our sin and our temptation that's all around us is if we see our need. And if we turn and face this living God. Let it be said about us that maybe our sin is notorious, but our repentance and our love for God is even more so. We can do that because God first loved us. Let's pray together. Father, there's danger everywhere in this room because there are sinful hearts everywhere. All of us are closer to destruction than we think. But for those who know you and love you, who are in Christ, we can have hope, we can have confidence that no one who is in your hand can be taken. That you are going to hold us fast to the end. And so in the midst of temptation that is raging all around us for those who are in Christ, I pray for them to, for all of us to fully rely upon you knowing that you are always faithful, you will always provide a way of escape for us. That we don't have to walk the path to destruction. You have broken the power of sin and death. That we can say no to sin by your spirit that dwells in us. Father, there are people that are really close to destruction that don't know you. And so we pray that you'd wake them up to how close to the edge they are, that they would see their need and turn and flee to Jesus, who would be their refuge for eternity. God, prepare us to walk in a world with sinful hearts, in a broken, sinful world that will tempt us toward evil. Prepare us to walk in a way that would bring you honor and glory, that would be the way of wisdom, where we walk in the fear of the Lord and we avoid sin. God, make us a holy people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.